Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today we have our golf guru, our golf buddy, Ben Shear. Ben, we will turn it over to you. Give the little listeners a little background on yourself, if you would, please. Yeah, hey. Well, appreciate you guys having me on. Basically, all of my time is taken up between hockey and golf. I've been working with professional golfers since the late 90s is, you know, in the golf fitness world, a very long time, long before it was popular, long before there was much going on. I've been doing it a long time, work with a bunch of PGA Tour players. I'm on the staff of Golf Digest, did an actual, did a national radio show for four or five years on Sirius XM, talking about golf fitness, which was kind of cool, being the first guy ever talking about golf fitness on a national radio type of scale. And I'm in New Jersey. I have my own facility. We have big juniors programs. I work with, you know, Amateur, regular golfers like everybody else does, you know, just guys getting off the couch, trying to put the ball in the hole and not have their back blow out or whatever the case may be, like <laughs> like many of the other people out there. So, you know, I think what's cool about my experience, you know, in the, at least in the golf world is that I get to work with the most elite players in the world down to young kids and, you know, everyday, you know, golfers and everything in between, which is pretty cool. You kind of learn, you know, we, we tend to love to do what the tour players do and you learn very quickly that amateurs are not just not tour players. Physically, you know, if you're sitting behind the desk for 30 years and yeah. working whatever, 50, 60 hours a week, you probably shouldn't be doing what Adam Scott's doing. It's probably not a great, <laughs> probably not the best plan. <laughs> so it's, you know, one of those type of things where, you know, you, you get some knowledge and, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the guys on tour, that's all they do, right? They live out on tour. They travel every week. They're doing that and they get so caught in that world. And it's a great world if that's the only thing you want to do, you know, or people who only work with amateurs. My, I've been fortunate enough to work with both. And you really started learning what you can apply to the amateur, what you can't, and what you need to do with guys where, you know, it's about the marginal gains and the smallest little details that you have to manage from a training perspective, a work, a load, a recovery, sleep, nutrition, like all of that stuff on the elite level, right? And they're, it's literally, it's all training golfers, but it might as well be two totally different things. If there is one commonality between training both, is there one thing that works across all there levels? One thing that works across all levels. It's just the most fundamental thing, basically. Yeah, being in better shape is better. <laughs> being, more flex, being more flexible is better. Being stronger is better. Being more flexible is better. More speed is better. All of those things, right? And I mean, it's a relative term, but like what's unique about most tour players are they have, how do I say this? Not saying it the wrong way, but they have kind of the mobility that most women have naturally. They're mm -hmm. super flexible. They're super mobile. They move really well, but they have the strength of a man. When mm -hmm. you work with amateurs, most women move really well, but they're lacking the stability, the strength, the power, all of those things. And most men... You know, I, I always say most men are strong enough to shoot par. Like from the white tees, most men have the strength that if they had the skill, that's not limiting their ability to be a scratch golfer. Their flexibility might be limiting their ability to be a, a scratch golfer and getting their clubs in good positions and doing all those things, but they're already strong enough. Their movement quality is not good enough. Like I said, their flexibility is not good enough, all of that stuff, but they're not limited by strength from the white tees on, you know, a normal quote unquote golf course go out and shoot a good round if they you know if you can hit it 230 and put it in the fairway on most country clubs or most municipal golf courses you can play and you can hit in the fairway 230 you can shoot par yeah for sure 
<laughs> right? And most guys are strong enough to hit it 220, 230. And, you know, you don't have to hit it 300 yards, Bryson, 400 yards or whatever. You don't have to do that to be a good amateur golfer. You really don't. Love the fact that you brought up that there's a clear distinction between the pro-level golfers and your amateurs. Do the amateurs have a hard time responding to that, though? Do they? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean. It's sexy, obviously, to talk about what tour players do, or, you know, we read about it in the magazines, we see it on Golf Channel, you know, somebody posts a video, who's a tour trainer, and they're in the gym with Justin Thomas or whomever. And, you know, the average golfer loves to follow all that stuff. They love the tour. They love these guys. It's kind of, you know, golf is really unique in the culture it has, almost unlike any other sport where, because you can play from kind of eight to 80 and most people, no matter what sport they come from throughout their lives, at some point become a golfer, right? Like, oh, I was a soccer player. Okay, well, I turned you know 30 and I got a job. I started taking up golf or, you know, I was a baseball player. Everybody becomes a golfer, you know. I know that it's a big hockey guy. I'm a big hockey guy, right? It's like yeah. all my hockey guys, all they do is play For golf. golf. <laughs> I mean, it's like my, my, like my summer, I do very little golf training. I spend the whole summer training like college and pro hockey guys mm -hmm. the minute they leave the gym doing their hockey training where do they go they go to the golf course Golf course, yeah. Right? and yep. like in my gym i have a lot of hockey stuff and i have a putting green i have a place to hit balls i mean all they want to do is hit balls and putt <laughs> and everything it's like dude we got to work out let's go man <laughs> like, hey, we're here for <laughs> hockey right like all they want to do like people love golf right so everybody eventually becomes a golf person in some way they really do and that's what makes golf so unique it's like people from every sport ultimately go to golf no other sport has a not everybody says, oh, I'm going to take up lacrosse or I'm going to take yeah. up ice hockey or yeah. soccer or whatever you do. Everybody ultimately goes to golf. And so you have so many people so fascinated about what these world-class players are doing. And because the ball is sitting on a tee and it doesn't move, people have this perception that they should just be able to do whatever they want and hit it just so perfectly and beautifully. <laughs> Like right? it's not a fastball coming at you 95 with a curve and you're like, or a fastball and it's like up high and away. And you have to like react to it. You think, oh, it's just sitting right there. How can I not hit that thing? It's got to be so easy, right? And golf is so hard, right? It's such a hard game. But their perception is that it should be easy. So when they see whatever, Justin Thomas, Adam Scott, Tiger Woods, whoever your guy is doing all this stuff, they go, oh, well, that must be the reason why I don't hit it like him because I must be able to do, I should have to do that extra magic exercise or whatever it is. And the reality is it's like you can't touch your toes, can't extend your spine. You have no trunk rotation. Your hips are like steel bricks. Really? That's what you think is going to help you play golf? Come on. It's silly, right? And I get it. And I understand the fascination, but I think we need to start separating professional athletes. And this is pretty much true in all sports, uh -huh, but especially because uh -huh. golf, the average golfer is 54 years old. You know, you might say the yeah. average hockey player is 16 years old. Right. Yeah, the average, exactly. the yeah, average right. golfer is 54 years old. Right. Yeah, so yes. maybe the 16 year old can aspire to try to do what, uh, you know, whomever does in hockey, if whoever their, you know, their fan is McDavid or whomever. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Dream to be the dream, right? You'd probably physically okay. You're a young kid, but at 54 sitting behind a desk, 50, 60 hours a week for 30 years, maybe having that kind of turn and ripping at it out of your shoes and jumping up off the ground and all that stuff. Not saying that you might not be able to work your way to that, but day one or certainly day 50, <laughs> that's probably not the best thing that's going to give you the most return yeah. for your time. Most guys, the fastest way to hit it farther is get more mobile. Just get a bigger turn. Get your hands deeper. Get the club deeper. Have have more time. If the further you get the club back, the more time you have to create speed. I'm people. I got guys working. They can barely get their club like halfway back 
and they're doing speed drills. I'm like, man, like really? I'm like, look, if I can just get you to turn better, I promise you your speed's going to go up way faster than that speed drill. So you're finding that most people that come to you want, they're thinking about, I need more strength and before I need, uh, that's a higher priority for them than mobilizing. Number one thing people want is to hit the ball further. Mm -hmm. I think that is golf's sexy thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. I want to hit it far. Like, and look, I'll be honest. I want to hit it far, right? I'm sure I know Neil's a good golfer, right? I mean, he wants to hit it far. And like, I don't play a lot of golf personally, which is crazy, but I don't play much golf. But I know that when I go out, if I go out and play with a buddy and he kicks my butt, but I outdrive him, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Still a good day. (laughs) I I kicked your butt, but I outdrove you, dude. It's all good. (laughs) Right? Like That's kind of how golf is. Mm -hmm. Like there's the bravado, macho thing about hitting it far. And everybody wants to hit the ball further. But we have to take a step backward and say, what is really the best way for you where you are physically in this moment to do that? Like I said, for one person, speed may the greatest way to pick up club head speed may be just to increase flexibility and mobility because their swing is so short because they can't move. They have no time to create speed. You got a really short swing because you can't rotate your spine or do anything. It's pretty hard at 60 years old. To have a lot of speed. But if I can get a big turn and get my shoulder and get my club deeper and my arms deeper, I have more time and opportunity. It's like I have a bigger runway to pick up speed. Mm-hmm. Like it's like if you think about your golf swing as a length issue, we think give a, like a car analogy. If we're going to have a race and we're going to see whose car go, can get up to 100 miles an hour, it's a lot easier to get up to 100 miles an hour if you have a long, a long road and a long runway to pick up speed. You only have a very short distance to get to 100 miles an hour. You better be pretty gifted and pretty talented. Gives you a longer road, right? Mm-hmm. Where to, to get the speed, you need a bigger motor. You know, for a lot of people, you need more elasticity in your muscles. Hard to gain a lot of elasticity at 60. I yes. mean, you know, I, I know people don't want to hear that, but that's just the reality of the situation. And that's why so many people do end up with back problems and all kinds of stuff because they are chasing this elasticity and speed and power on a short road. They're trying to get as fast as they can in the smallest window of time. We need to give them time and room and space to move. And once we have that good movement and a longer runway, then we kind of ramp up our speed and we have a chance to get there. There is no quick fix to you know getting those short little swing really fast. I promise you, if you're 60 years old and you got a swing that your club is barely you know, vertical at the top of your backswing and you got 30 degrees of shoulder turn, it's going to be pretty tough for you to swing at 105. It just, it's going to be tough, man. I don't care how much speed sticks or Mach 3 or any <laughs> program you're on. Forget it. It's not going to happen, right? Or you're going to hurt yourself doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not against those programs. I love that stuff for the right person at the right time. So where have you found the, you know, the three or four biggest areas that people need to improve? You know, the first thing they need to go to. Yeah, I would say, again, speaking about men golfers, because obviously women are different and juniors are going to be a little different as well. But for our men golfers, obviously hip mobility and thoracic spine mobility are going to be your two biggest areas to go. And then a lot of people you see, they have shoulder mobility, but oftentimes when you fix their thoracic, their shoulder tends to improve a lot, mm-hmm. right? Because their, their shoulder doesn't externally rotate or whatever because they're so kyphotic. Their spine is locked forward. The scap's not sitting properly on the thorax. You're getting, you know, all of the issues that go with that postural breakdown. That's not allowing you to allow you to express proper shoulder motion. But once you get that thoracic extension, I said rotation, but you know, I always think about it really as extension preceding rotation, right? Because if you have a lot of kyphotic posture, you're not going to rotate well. 
A lot of people who have that bad posture, they're working on a lot of rotary exercises. When the reality is they need to get extension of the spine first, mm -hmm. then ro oftentimes rotation tends to just come back. <laughs> but at a minimum, then you can at least go chase rotation. If you're going to just be in a super kyphotic posture, you're going to have a hard time gaining a lot of rotation, right? So you tend to get that extension back. All of a sudden, that scap now sits more flush to the thorax. Shoulder and scapular relationships work better. Scapular humor rhythm works better. Boom! Now you got shoulder you got shoulder external rotation. And you didn't even chase it. You chased something that fixed thoracic rotation and shoulder rotation in one. I don't want to say simple thing. It is not a simple thing. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. gonna obviously take work. So I don't want to downplay the effort that it takes to improve thoracic extension. But I think that most people who sit behind a desk. They're on a computer all day. You know, that today's society, as we all, I'm sure you guys talk about with many people, is sitting rounded forward. All of that stuff is killing us all, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff that you guys do with uh, the sticks, doing couch stretches, all of those type of things are critical to unwinding the sitting all day and sitting in a kyphotic posture, right? So to me, those things are the foundations of what we need to do. We need to undo what I call reverse patterning. We need mm -hmm. to reverse pattern our daily living to get us back to at least a normal state of function. And then we can start saying, okay, what do I really need for golf? But oftentimes just reverse patterning the problems we've created still gives us a golf performance uptick, even though we didn't chase it because we do now move better. Our spine is moving better. We do have a bigger turn. We can load into our hips properly or better than we were, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and we get a lot of bang for our buck with, I don't want to call it, again, I don't want to call it simple things, but not, sexy fancy things mm -hmm. how would your approach differ for say an amateur golfer that comes to you at the age of 30 versus that amateur golfer that comes to you at the age of 65 yeah so obviously a big difference so my first mm -hmm. question with those people usually would be what sports did you play as a kid how good were you at those sports as a kid a guy comes to me and he's 30 years old and he says oh i played division one college baseball and blah 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 you're like okay well maybe we got something here right you know that he's got some talent, probably. He's got some genetics. He probably has some inherent speed in his system or he wouldn't have been able to play at that level or something. Or you get another kid who is just another guy who comes in, same guy, who's like, you know what? I never really played golf growing up as a kid. I wasn't much of an athlete. I, you know, played the trumpet or whatever. <laughs> I did theater. I was a smart kid. I was focused. You know, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money. I had to have a job after school. And there's lots of reasons why people didn't participate in these things. And you know what? I've, you know, I got to, you know, now I have some more free time. I'm just taking up golf. That guy I'm going to treat very differently than the guy who says, I, you know, I played college hockey, baseball, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm going to kind of say, hey, I'm going to kind of try to use, if I can, if there's a time and a place, use maybe some of my more tour type performance training stuff with that baseball guy. And I might treat the other guy almost more like the 60 year old. Like, hey, look, mm -hmm. why do I want to try to make this guy elastic at 30 years old? Because he's going to probably still be sitting behind his desk. He's still going to be doing all these things that are going to be whatever. And I'm going to have to unwind it again anyway. So I'm going to try to teach him to move in a way that's low stress on his body, easy to be efficient with, right? Instead of trying to have so much, you know, golf, we call X factor stretch where you're firing your hips out underneath your upper body. I'm going to let him kind of move his hips and everything together. You know, let that front heel maybe come up in their backswing. So it's easier to turn, make the game as easy as I can, because I know here's a guy who doesn't have a lot of athleticism or doesn't have much experience with athleticism. So why am I going to try to give them the most complicated way to play golf? Like the best guys in the world might be doing. I want to simplify the game for that guy. 
I want to make the movement pattern simple. I want to make delivering the club simple. I want to make getting the club in good position simple. I want to find everything that I can to make a person enjoy the game. Because, you know, golf was unique also in that no other sport in the world, you play more as you get older. Like people mm. like, right? Every other sport, as you age, you start playing less and less mm. and less and less. Like, I'm like, you dance, like, how much hockey you playing now, man? Well, right now I can't give it. I can't even get out of the damn ice. But like once a week is a good rate. Right. So once a week, like if yeah. you're a kid, how many times a week we play? Oh, like my kid plays year yeah. 18 AAA right now. You're it doesn't, always, doesn't yeah. come off the ice. Yeah. You, you want, even if you play in a house league, you're still on the ice three to four times a week. Right. Correct. So, yeah. and you think and you, what at 60, how many times do you think you're going to be playing a week? I, once a week I, would be my goal. I'm still trying to you're, just maintain once a week, right? Right. You'd be hoping to still play yeah, once a week. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people in golf, they're like, oh, next year I'm going to retire and I'm going to play golf every day. <laughs> every day. Every right? day. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> every day. Okay, yes. You're like, your whole life you've never played golf every day. You're now 70 years old or 60 years old. Or whatever. Now you're going to play every day. <laughs> like, give me another sport where like you're going to like bring up your intensity of activity. Like, that magnitude it's mm-hmm. the only sport that goes the other way yes very so good, having yeah. your body be prepared and be able to do it and move and try to keep the stresses and the torques and all that stuff in check the, the best you can is going to be critical to that person to be playing every day or they're going to be playing every fourth day and probably the day they're playing is with three advil and a scotch <laughs> it's be three holes yes. a day yeah pretty, pretty true yeah that's very true Right. So, I mean, it's a unique sport in that side. And, you know, I, I don't think that people really step back and think about it through that lens. We tend to just look at what the best players in the world are doing and we say, oh, well, you, if that's good for, you know, Brooks Kupka, that must be good for you. It's like, mm, not so much. So I know you have a pretty in-depth assessment process with, with your tour players and your competitive golfers. Yeah. Now, do you ever use this with the, with the average golfer? So I, I'm, look, I have, a, I still have a pretty, what I would call, uh, telling screen with our average golfers. You know, my screen is not like a, just doing a basic TPI screen. It's definitely more in depth than something like that. If a person does still want to do, get some speed and other stuff, I will look at some power types of numbers as well. So my, my full assessment for like an amateur golfer is still an hour to an hour and a half. I still want to really get a more global view of them from a physical perspective. Um, so I, I'm a big red cord guy. So I do some red cord assessments with them. I do some TPI stuff. I've created some of my own stuff that I've created. I do a bunch of different power stuff. I have 1080 motion and all kinds of cool technology and stuff in my gym. You know, we have ballistic balls, which are med balls with sensors in them and stuff like that. I think some of the med ball testing that's kind of popular in today's world for how far you can throw a ball as a measure of power, I think are antiquated, you know, like golf. There's a launch angle perspective. If I throw too high, it doesn't co- quite go that far. If I throw it a little bit on the too low of an angle, it doesn't go too far. But it doesn't mean I wasn't powerful. It just means I had a bad angle that I threw it at. Yeah. Yes. Right. So looking at distance. And so if I'm even comparing, you know, you, Neil, if I say, okay, throw this med ball as far as you can doing whatever, and you throw it, let's just say at a, you know, 14 degree launch. And we say, oh, that's optimal. And next time you throw it, it's at a 16 degree launch and it goes shorter. I look like I did a bad job with my training. And maybe I, you're actually way more powerful, but because your technique had changed or the launch angle had changed, yeah. you know, I always give the people the hose example, right? So if I turn my hose on with X amount of Ugh. force, right? Yes. And it's shoot, where does the water hit the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have my thing perfectly parallel to the ground, 
my hose parallel to the ground, the water will hit the, depending on how much pressure I have coming out, it will hit the ground at a certain point. As I start tipping and pointing that hose upward, that point that the water is hitting the ground is getting further and further and further. But then there will be a point where it starts pointing too upright, where mm -hmm. it will start getting shorter and shorter again. So using distance of throwing an object is really, in my opinion, a silly way to measure power. Right. So nowadays we have technology, but I have you can get medicine balls that have sensors inside them, and you can throw it four feet to somebody or off of a wall, and it will give you, you know, what was your watts, your newtons, your meters per second, measure all that stuff, and it doesn't care what angle you throw it at. Are you actually more powerful or faster or whatever, or are you not? Yes or no. And that's all we should be focusing on. Like some of the stuff I think gets lost in translation, and they seem like cool tests and you know, they were probably really cool tests before we had technology <laughs> to do a better job. But, you know, nowadays, you know, what's awesome is that we have so much data, so much information that I think as a trainer, I want to feel like, A, as I do my programming for people, that I really know about them really well, that I'm not getting confused by what I'm looking at. And I really want to be able to track my progress and say, hey, did I make the positive change that I want or not? And it doesn't mean you're always going to be perfect in your program design. You can make a mistake and not get the change you want. But at least you know for sure, you know what? That didn't make a big change. We need to mix up our programming. What we're doing isn't working. Let's try a different path or whatever the case may be, which is okay. We all, none of us are perfect and have all the magic answers to the training question. But the better the information we start building our program from, the better our chances of getting a good outcome. What is uh, the most common type of injury that you see in golf? Probably either back or hips then? Yeah. So, as a right-handed golfer, most people, a lot of right side low back, right? So obviously golf has two major problems. Number one is it's so single-sided. It's a repetitive mm -hmm. stress, right? You know, you know, like if you play tennis or other sports, at least you have a forehand and you have a backhand, you're kind of rotating both ways. Golf, you only rotate one way. So obviously that's one of the issues that we have to deal with. And the other is a lot of people have excessive side bending, side bend, flex, flexion, side bend and rotation are not a great combination of motions uh, for the back, as you guys know as well as anybody, right? I mean, those are things that are high stress on the back. And certain people have swings that have tons of side bend in them. And obviously, you're not going to have no side bending golf. It'd be pretty tough to be a good golf with no side bend. But excessive side bend with repetitive stress is a big problem for those people. To me, number one exercise, so QL on that side, getting absolutely crushed. So, I mean, one of the things for me, you know, while I got, I got involved with you guys, I mean, even simplistically is if you just had stick mobility sticks just to do the bow and arrow to get length through QL on that side of your body, it would be worth your money just to do that because that is one of the major problems for golfers. Like from an injury perspective, probably the number one issue you see with most amateur golfers, they can't get length through the side that they're shortening so much, mm, right? Yep. That, that right side bending, crunching down rotating. And so I think if you can keep length through the tissues there, your odds of not getting that problem are really big. When I actually have a social media post, I'm going to post that you guys are going to like with the sticks that I call now X factor bow, bow and arrow. Oh, or I actually yeah. go into like an X factor and then do it. Get a little bow. Oh, very oh, nice. Very nice. Okay. And, and then I have, and then for the reverse patterning one, I'm doing one now called X factor reverse bow and arrow. So if, my rot if I'm a right rotation, I mean, if I'm a left rotation, right side bend guy, I'm going to go right rotation, side bend the opposite way. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so just it. looking at 
kind of how you take some of the concepts of stuff that you guys have been doing a long time and say, okay, how do I, can I really create some coupled motion? So it's like rotation, side bend, pelvic rotation, like coupling the motions, but still now getting that tissue lengthened really in a specific pattern that's truly reverse patterning what I'm doing in golf. So when you talk about reverse patterning, are you trying to actually balance someone out or are you trying to just kind of mitigate, you know, possible injuries by just taking away some of that uh, excessive side bending or excessive overuse on one side? Yeah, I would say it's mitigate. I think it's almost impossible to truly, you know, again, if I sit behind the desk all day for eight, nine hours a day, it's going to be pretty tough to reverse pattern sitting all day for nine hours, unless I'm really willing to, you know, lie extended backward <laughs> over a stability ball for not to sleep overnight or something like that. Right. I mean, I don't think that's a realistic thing. I think we're just trying to get those tissues out of that position, get those joints out of those positions, create some space in there, create some mobility in the tissue because, you know, our, our body is a great adapter. So mm -hmm. if I sit all day, you know what my body learns? Oh, that's what I'm actually supposed to be good at. So let me get <laughs> right. really good at sitting. So let me yeah. shorten those hip flexors. Let me get that kyphotic posture locked in. So shorten that whole front fascial line or, you know, get the back one over, overstretched, long, all of that stuff. So like your body's going to adapt to what you ask it to do the most, which is really cool. I guess in a lot of ways, that's how we survived for a long time. But we weren't designed to sit at a desk on a computer all day. So now all of a sudden the behaviors that we do the most are being ingrained into our system in a way that is probably not what we want to be doing. So I think what we're like to your point, I think we're trying to mitigate that issue to some reasonable level. And it's like, look, let's just at least through a full range of motion a bit, go the exact opposite of what we just did all day and just get that joint out of that or those muscles or whatever fashion, different slings, whatever out of that shortened position and get some length back in those areas. Oh yeah. Cause if, I mean, if you're working with a high level athlete too, we're not trying to create balance. No, look, they're in balance is sometimes what makes mm -hmm. them great. Right. But yeah. there's a point where that can go too far and all of a sudden it becomes a problem. So you, I might want them to have the ability to be a really good side bender, but I don't want them not to have the ability to side bend the opposite direction, which is what happens, right? If you only do it the one way, I mean, if you ever walk behind a PGA Tour player, a right-handed PGA Tour player, and they literally walk with their left shoulder really high, they're literally bent to the right, right? From yeah, side I think my, my right shoulder, it's a little bit lower than my left, yeah, just from all the years of playing. Correct, right? So now imagine if you did that to the level they did. And I know you played a lot of golf and you're a pretty high-level golfer yourself, but, but you're also like a super fitness guy, do rock climbing and do all kinds of other stuff that are probably, maybe not purposefully, but are certainly mitigating some of those issues and how you train and the things that you're doing, you know, with the sticks, with your rock climbing, I'm sure other stuff that you're doing in the gym, you are mitigating it, maybe not purposely, but <laughs> yeah, you're, you're getting that result through it. You know, if you guys just, a lot of people, the only activity they do is they golf and maybe they come to the gym with a trainer mm -hmm. or on the gym on their own, whatever the case may be. They're not doing rock climbing and all the other cool stuff that you're doing, right? So they're not going to get that mitigation process unless it's purposeful. Do you think there's uh do you think too many trainers that work with golfers are trying to overcorrect? Overcorrect what? When they oh we got it's a huge imbalance let's overcorrect and they try to actually overcorrect the issue like we talked about that imbalance is what allows that person to perform at that level. Yeah, I, I think the, on the tour level you see guys who have those type of 
what I would call functional adaptations mm-hmm. that because of it and trying to do it at a high level, they actually adapt. Like we were saying, adapting to sitting, mm-hmm. <laughs> they actually adapt to golf swing, right? Which is probably helping them be really good. I don't see many amateur golfers that are adapted to their golf swing. Most amateur golfers I see are adapted to their desk, sadly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the, the amount of time that they play golf versus the amount of time they sit in desk is a disproportionate uh, relationship. How important is uh, your breath uh, breath work in regards to synchronizing that with the with the golf swing? So obviously, if we, I mean, we can go down a whole rabbit hole here <laughs> on breath and intra-abdominal pressure and expansion and compression and all of that stuff, right? I do think breath is both from an exercise perspective, super important. Because a lot of the people that I see who lack that shoulder external rotation and some of that scapular relationship, they don't know how to get proper expansion in their system through their breath and all of that stuff. So, right, I mean, oversimplicity, you think inhale is expansion, external rotation, extension, all of those things. Exhale is kind of internal rotation, flexion, pronation, all of those things. I mean, I guess it's an oversimplistic way of thinking about it. But, yeah, I think that if you're in your backswing, if you took a big, deep breath in, and created expansion that would help external rotation. It would help trunk rotation, all that stuff. And then actually forcefully blew it out on the way down. Almost what, you know, you think of a Serena Williams in tennis or a martial artist that, you know, her, she, you know, she grunts, you hear the karate guy go with his kias, whatever they're doing, that's forceful exhalation, Mm -hmm. right? That's what they're doing. Like, I don't know if they consciously know it or they were just taught it as kids, but that's what they're trying to do, right? The grunt, Mm -hmm. they know that that just works. Like Serena knows when she grunts, that's more powerful, right? Because mm-hmm. that's creating this compression and this contraction action. And the, if you take the big breath in, it's like <gasps> you can wind up, everything gets loaded up, and then <sighs> blow it out. So I think that if you know how to use your breath properly from an inhalation, exhalation perspective, you can use it to help increase your range of motion in your swing as well as increase your speed and power in your swing. But it's, so it's like in on the back, forcefully out on the mm-hmm. way down. I wonder when we're going to get a guy on tour to start grunting. <laughs> <laughs> to hit it further. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if you see Bryson do it. Mm. Yeah, so, okay, with Bryson's training now, right, he's hitting it, he's getting up there to 400 yards. Um, have you seen a shift on tour at all with the way guys are training to try to keep up? Or uh, Look, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't think people are trying to train the way Bryson trains. Bryson's a unique guy, and what he's doing works for him, right? So you got to respect what he's doing. I think that Bryson, just as a person, is a different guy. How he approaches golf, you're talking about a guy who used single length clubs his whole life, you know, all the things that he's done. We all know, you know, there's moisture on the ball and the humidity in the air, like he's Mr. Physics and just his brain works differently than a lot of guys. Other guys, you know, they're more field players are, but there's no doubt that we know statistically that distance is the number one correlation metric in golf to who wins the most money. Guys who hit it the farthest win the most money. So are guys looking to hit the ball further? Oh, yes, they are, right? I mean, and I don't think it's because of Bryson. I think it's because of money, (laughs) right? It's a simple thing. Hey, why? You know, you look at the guys who are the top guys, Rory, DJ, Bryson, now all these guys, they kill it. Well, so if you're not hitting it near them, your odds of winning a lot of money are going down. So it's like any business, you say, where's the return on my time and in my efforts? And there's a big return on speed and power. Um, so I think you are going to see that not going to change. I think we're going to keep going further down the rabbit hole. And I think as Bryson gets longer, then everybody else is forced to keep up with the Joneses, right? So it's like, if he's going to hit it for, you know, like we used to think when hitting it 300 was far, then 315 became far. Now kind of 330, 340 seems to be far. I mean, Bryson is hitting it 400 off of the thing. And it's not 
hitting at 400 in golf tournaments, whatever. I think he's averaging around 330, 335, something like that. And he's not even, I don't even think he's the longest. I think Cameron Champ. I think Cameron Champ is, yeah. Hits it the longest, right? I mean, Matthew Wolf hits it a mile. Like, there are a bunch of guys who, and obviously DJ and Rory, when they want to rear back and let it go, still can hit it pretty far. Um, But definitely we're going, golf is going into being a power game. But, you know, that's where people start getting into equipment design and course design and all this stuff. And should the rules change and all that stuff? Like, I'm... Nobody could be more against changing the rules for amateur golfers than me. Because like I said in the beginning of this, and I think this ties back to what I said right off the gate, it's like tour players and amateur golfers are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Tour, tour players, yes, maybe we are going to need to do something about equipment or whatever, because, or we're just going to have to change par or just mm, change what our yeah. expectations change what our expectations are. I mean, you don't have to change anything. Look, you should be re- rewarded for being stronger, faster, more powerful. I'm a fitness guy. Hey, you know what? I think those things are skill. And you could see those are clearly things that can be developed and people work hard at it. I don't think you should be punished and someone to say, oh, just because I worked harder in the gym, you know, I know Matthew Fitzpatrick was complaining about Bryson recently. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, look, and I get it. He's hitting it 100 yards past you. But at the same time, it's like, by the way, dude, he changed his diet. He's in the gym for three hours. He's done a lot of work to do that. Well, why shouldn't he be rewarded for the work mm-hmm. he did? He deserves it. You know, you should say good for you, man. You know, I'm not willing to do it. But you know what? I get it. You've earned that so I, I think that's i have no issue with that where people get crazy is like do we have to change what par is should par be 68 for tour players and 72 for amateur right and then we just get our scores in check it's just they're just going to shoot lower scores so either we're okay with guys winning at 25 30 under a or we just lower par and all of a sudden the numbers seem the same and you know par for amateurs is different than par is for pros but certainly my point originally about them being so different is that the typical amateur we cannot make the equipment go shorter for them. Golf is so hard. People are terrible at golf. The people, <laughs> I mean, it's hard, dude. 10% of all people who play golf break 100 consistently. Only 10% of everyone who plays golf basically never breaks 100. Damn, is that really? Right? Damn. Ne- never breaks 100. Wow. 10%. Wow. Wow. Golf is hard, man. Yeah, well, it is. It is. It's frustrating. And I'm shit. not saying they don't ever break 100, but like never post a score in the 100. Or bet worse. Do 10%. you know what the average index is? I don't know, but I mean that's not that's almost irrelevant because most of the people who play golf don't have an index. Yeah. They play the municipal golf course somewhere. They don't have a handicap. They don't have an index. They don't have anything. They just love the game. They want to go out. They want to have fun. They want to enjoy it. They want to do all that stuff. So like, if we start making it harder to hit it far, controlling how far the ball goes or the technology for the drivers or whatever it is. We're going to make this game impossible for the amateur. The amateur is yeah. not going to be shooting 150. So <laughs> we're going to change the rules for the 150 best players in the world for the other 60 million people or whatever it is playing golf. That's insanity. Yeah. So you want to, you want to change par. You want to do all that stuff. You know, there are people for bifurcating the rules and having restricted equipment for tour players. I'm not even for that. I think, like I said, you, if you work hard, you should be, resi- you should be rewarded. If I'm willing to go to the gym three hours a day, and mm-hmm. practice five hours a day and eat a better diet and work on my sleep and my rest and my recovery and all the things that you and I do every day to help our athletes be their best. If you're willing to do a better job at that and work harder and be more committed to me, good for you. You deserve reward, strength, speed, mobility. All of those things are skills that can be developed. And if you don't want to do the work, that's fine. But don't complain when somebody else busts their butt and then kicks your ass. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. man. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's sorry. Like a- <laughs> 
It's like Give an NBA player complaining about LeBron James being too athletic or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he should have to shoot on a higher rim or something. I mean, it's, it's who he is, right? It's the time he's put in. It's the, and Bryson's uh, done the work. Yeah, guy's done the work. So you know, I, I'm not for that concept. I don't buy into that for a second. Again, like I said, are there ways to change things? Like I said, change what par is, or you know, and and you do that simply by look. Basically, no hole under 500 yards will ever be a par five again. You know, no, no, you know. There are no par threes. You know, nothing's a par four that's 315 yards. How many courses do you go to? 315 yard par four. These guys are hitting three wood off yeah. the tee, off the tee to the green. Well, that shouldn't be a par four. That's still 300 yards is still a par three. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no 465 yard, 485 yard par fives. Well, I'm going to hit a 350 off the tee. I'm hitting 135 in. How's that a par five? Par five is going to be 550 yards or something. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how you manage it. Make it hard. And then, you know what? Then everybody's laying up. Everybody's got to make those shots. Yeah, it's still going to be, it's still always going to be an advantage to hit it far. Give me how you, so if I restrict the flight of a ball, then Bryson's 350 now goes 310. Where does Zach Johnson's ball go now? Yeah, two ten. Two ten. Yeah. So how did that help anybody? It doesn't. uh, It doesn't change anything. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't change anything. Correct. No. Sorry, dude. The guy worked hard. People work hard. Some people are stronger. Some people are faster. Guess what? You better get a really good short game. Find find somewhere else where you can make it up. And I know that's really hard in today's game, mathematically and statistic-wise. I mean, Mark Brody's a good friend of mine. He's actually coming in the gym tomorrow. I work with him a lot. He's the guy who does all the stats for the tour of every stroke, strokes gain, stats on stuff. Look, I get it. There's less margin to improve because you know what? The reality is Bryson's not going to seven putt, right? It's, like, <laughs> right? it's not like because he hits it 100 yard further, he's going to seven putt. He's still going to two putt most greens, right? And he's still going to some one putt, some and three putt occasionally. He's barely never going to four putt. Like So there's just not that much margin in certain statistical areas to make up the ground the way there is in driving. But guess what? That's the game. <laughs> we don't get to make the rules. We got to live by it. Well, because I know when I first talked to you about golf, that was my misconception is, oh, it's all about. And you told me that the difference, the real difference is your short game. I mean, there's a app. Yeah. From the, from the, like the elite. From the elite. Yeah. And, you know, the regular competitive golfer, yeah. it's a short game. But yeah, if you have, if you can hit it far and you have a good short game, you're, you're on tour. You're on tour. Because all those guys have a good enough short game. The amateur golfer can't chip at all or putt. You know, the amateur golfer gets it up near the green or around the green much easier than they get in the hole you know they get up and they're in the rough five feet off the side of the green they can make six from there in a minute oh yeah easy (laughs) so they get there in three and you think okay it's a par four and you think okay i could play bogey golf right which is i'm shooting 90 basically right i could play bogey golf so it's a par four i'm saying hey look i'm only getting near the green in three which is still not great but i get there in three so to make two from there shouldn't be that hard but like literally the amateur golfer can make five, six from there every time. They chip it terribly. They leave a 25 footer. They leave it eight feet short or they roll it 10 feet by. <laughs> They're like easy. Then they have a four footer for, you know, bogey. And then they miss that. And now it's all and you got double. And you're just like, I was at the greens five <laughs> shots ago. What just happened? Right. So, but you don't, tour players don't do that. Right. Yeah. So the far matters because at their level, everybody, Yes, there are better chippers and better putters than other guys, but the margins aren't as different as a guy hitting it 60 yards past you. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big problem. Yeah, you were kind of describing me playing golf there with all those uh, putts on the green. 
All guess, of us, man. I, not oh, you, oh, me oh. too. I mean, it's hard. Golf's hard. Well, it's kind of funny because, like, when Neil took me to the driving range and started trying to teach me some technique, I, it's it's a frustrating game. Well, you're so dialed into hockey too, right? It's just so fun. So you got to really have him is. have a lot of lateral motion in his swing and be mm-hmm. really flat with his swing because if he's not flat and lateral, like he needs to move off it and move into it. Yeah, he's in hockey. So in golf, we create rotation with a ground reaction force. You have push-pull of your feet to create torque mm-hmm. and create rotation. But if you push-pull your feet in hockey, you do a yeah. split. You're <laughs> right. Yeah. You do a split on the ice. Exactly. Yes. Like, yes. So hockey players use lots of lateral Blood. motion yeah. and then their edges to create lateral break, lateral push and lateral breaking to do it, right? So my hockey guys that I work with, I let them use a lot of laterals. And they have a tendency to have their arms really, they have a really low arm and shaft plane because they're used to bringing the, the hockey stick around them. They're not used to getting their hands up high. Yeah. Like when their hands get up high, they're like, oh, now they're chopping wood. That's the only thing they know about high hands is like, let me go chop some lumber. They can is hit that a hockey you were seeing? Oh, shoot, man. I don't remember. This, man, this <laughs> that was a long, long time ago. That was a while ago. It's been a, <laughs> it's been a long time since we've been in the driving range. Right, but you follow so, what I'm saying there? No, I, like, I can easily you're, sense You're a that. lateral yeah. guy, can, you're a yeah. flat guy around yeah. the body, and all of a sudden you might be like, oh, this is not so bad. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, you're not going to be great at golf, but you'll make better contact more consistently because you're tapping into what you do. Mm-hmm. You don't know from torquing the ground. Yeah. You, there is no torquing in hockey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in today's hockey, the way you shoot, literally, there's not even any rotation. No, just, you just flex your stick. You just push, pull, and twitch. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> You know, the technology of the sticks. Uh, yeah. It's, and the game's it's, too fast. If you pull the puck behind you, like we did when we were kids and then, you know, point the toe and all, if you pull that stick, the puck behind you, the puck's gone. The other guy's already going the other way. Like right. you got to keep it in front of you. you. You lean on your shaft, you flex the shaft, you push pull and you, you get a little wrist twitch and fucking comes off like a missile. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, I watch my kids shoot and it's like, he's barely moving. It's like, and the thing comes out like a rocket. It's crazy. Right. And it's like, how do you shoot it like that? I mean, yeah. like, you know, when you and I learned to play hockey, at least when I did, we were using wooden sticks. Wood sticks. I still so th- there was a. I still have one wood stick. Yeah, but I, it didn't it, flex or bend. It, it only no, it yeah. either it either yeah. cracked or didn't do anything. Yeah. yeah. And you, if you leaned on it too hard, it snapped. And then you were buying a new stick, right? Today's stick are made to kind of flex and flex, recoil yeah. and snap back. So it's a totally different thing. So you need to kind of use what you learned in hockey in your goal and feel more lateral feel more flat, feel more kind of this mm-hmm. moving this way, like you're moving into the ball instead of you're being so rotary. Yeah, because I know when Neil was trying to show me that stuff, it was, for me, I just I wasn't getting the sense of that. And I, if it was hard for me because I just wasn't used to that when you were trying to describe it to give me the access. And I, was I was like, what's wrong with you, man? I just I gave up. <laughs> well, it's yeah, kind of look- fu- you know, it's kind of funny because then we, you know, with Tommy, you know, Tommy oh, Jones, yeah. You you did some stuff for Tommy, and all of a sudden he's just and yeah. to see that was like oh. and what Tommy, sports did he play? He played in the NFL. NFL. He was, he was yeah, a cornerback yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah, like if you play cornerback, you can pretty much do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's just say those guys are the best athletes in the world. Like yeah. let's start. Let's start with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but play, hockey is so unique on ice, right? So, but I, but a lot of hockey players are great golfers. Yeah, and that's no doubt, and they can hit it a mile. Mm-hmm. But they're just using a different strategy. Mm. What you need to do is tap into your hockey strategy, mm. and you might find quickly, Dennis, that all of a sudden you can hit it okay. 
Oh, interesting. All, All right, right. Go so check it out. I'll have to check that out. There's some. There's your golf advice for the day. Not, <laughs> oh, not exercise right. advice, but some golf okay. ground reaction force. <laughs> so a tour schedule, you know, typical tour schedule is basically year round, right? How do you yeah. go about programming that, you know, um, since there really is no off season? Yeah, so it's become very challenging. Um, you know, I've been doing this so long that we used to have an off season that, you know, basically if you were working with good players, after tour champs, you basically would have off kind of say beginning of September until January. And the first week of the tour was in Sony, oh, well, Tournament of Champions, which, you know, back then was Mercedes, has changed a hundred times, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Kapalua. And so you had about a 10, 12 week. And so, you know, we back then would do a much more traditional kind of periodized model. Maybe you'd have two phase, you know, three, four week phases or two six week phases or whatever you were doing during that because you had a real, time nowadays you really don't have that the same way the top players are still probably playing about 20 to 24 events so you do have about 26 weeks off um and and you really have to lay out your entire year before the year starts and say where are my windows of opportunity where do i have a three-week break where is there anywhere where i have a four-week break is there anywhere where do i have two-week breaks you know if you have players who have left lower status on the tour they don't even know what they're going to get into or not. I mean, you're constantly just trying to like mix and match and make a plan. Okay, well, I'm going to have off next week because I didn't get in. Okay, oh, you know what? I didn't think I was going to get in, but you know, I'm the first alternate and this guy's out and now I'm in. Like, it is really, really, really hard. And I think one of the interesting things is, you know, like I would say for a hockey, as a hockey strength coach, I'm an off-season hockey strength coach, meaning I get to work out with guys in the off-season. You know, there's no regard for performance how they play or anything, you know, they're all in on their training. That's the time of year where that's their focus. And at the same time in golf, I'm basically always an in-season guy because they're really, to your point, Neil, there really is no off-season. And what you learn is how different those jobs are. And one of the fascinating things, I think you can look across and I, you know, all sports, if you know guys who were in the private sector, who were great strength coaches in, you know, whether it be hockey, baseball, golf, whatever, guys who are really good strength coaches, and then they get a job in pro sports. I could say you were an NHL, you know, working with hockey guys in the offseason. And then they get a job in the NHL. And all of a sudden they're terrible. And people are like, well, what's the matter with this guy? It's like, no, because it's not the same job. Yeah. Yeah. You're a good offseason coach. You're a stinking season because you're not managing injuries, bumps, yeah. and bruises, and sleep and recovery and on the road and all of this stuff. And you see it in baseball all the time. Guys who are great baseball offseason guys. And they're not great strength coaches in season. It's a different job. It's not that, you know, we think about it the same. When you step back, it's like, man, like, especially in a sport like hockey, baseball, those sports, these guys are playing four or five times a week. Man, I mean, working out's not that important. I hate to tell you. No. (laughs) Right? Like, you're just doing some, trying to maintain, you're trying to manage injuries. You're trying to maintain some strength and speed. And you're trying to get them recovered so they can go out and perform the next night. You're not worried about all the other stuff that we, the cool, fun, sexy stuff that we get to do in the off season. Let's get stronger, more mobile, faster, explosive, do all this cool stuff. That's not the job in season, right? So golf is really tricky. And sometimes depending on who you're working with, you can, like, if you got a guy who's a top player who, you know, is in all the majors, he's in all of those things. You can sometimes get a guy like that to commit to saying, look, I know I got a bunch of weeks, but I really all, I'm trying to win majors now in my career. I've won a lot of golf events. I have money. Not that I don't want to do well, but I'm willing to prioritize getting ready for the masters, whatever. I'll use. And they will literally give you 
say, look, let's take the next 12 weeks and prep. And even though I'm mm. going to be playing, I'll just do what I'm supposed to do on the road, on the gym. I'll just do whatever. And maybe in that 12 weeks, they're only playing four or five of those weeks. They're not going to be playing every single week, right? But they'll just get on a plan and say, look, the chips will fall where they may those weeks. But my goal is to be peaking for a major, right? right? So you really, each player kind of has their own where other guys are worrying about keeping their cards. And they're like, anytime I get a chance to tee it up, I need to put a check in my pocket and make some money. So I keep my status on tour. I'm not in any majors. I'm not in any invitationals and I'm not in the WGCs, right? So if you get rid of the four majors, four WGCs is eight. And then things like Colonial and Memorial and a bunch of these other invitational stuff, that's like 10 weeks off the schedule that you have no event to play, right? So, and those are the biggest money and the most world ranking points. So you're playing in smaller events that have less points, less money, less whatever. You need to perform those weeks. So those guys have a total different mindset. You know, that week at Mississippi or whatever, where other guys are just, you know, just getting reps in, they're grinding like it's the masters for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to approach that guy very differently. He's in his major for him. That might be his major week, you know, especially depending as the season goes on, depending on what type of status you have as the season gets late. It's not like you're on you know, Yankees and you have a contract and I got three more years on my deal. Like on the PGA tour, if like you're outside that top 150 on the money list. And we're getting down to the last two, three weeks, and you're number 175. You don't get inside that 150, dude. The jig is up. You're off the tour. Thanks for coming. See you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Right? It's yeah. like the pressure on those guys for those weeks are worse than the pressure of major championships for the bigger guys. Because this is for their livelihood. This mm-hmm. is for their life. This is to pay their bills. This is, I mean, so like, you know, these are things that people don't even understand and talk about. So the psychology and what matters to whom, when really plays a huge role. And how you start looking at your programming with each of these players. And I could have guys that I, that I work with, you know, who are doing on one end of that spectrum and guys on the other one. Like I'm going to Florida next week to do master's prep with one of my guys. Right. And I have other guys who are not in the masters and are, you know, playing this week and next week. And they're going to be off the week of the masters and they're like master's week might be a workout week for them or whatever. So, you know, it's not a simple thing and it's really, really hard to do it. it I think it's a disservice to the players, to be honest. There's no other sport in the world that doesn't have an off season. Mm, yeah. yeah. It makes no yeah, it's sense. Crazy. It's crazy. Right. I mean, it's a grind. You're traveling, you're there, they're playing four rounds. You know, most of them on a Wednesday have to play a practice round in the pro-ams. You know, you're, you're sleeping in strange beds. You're on the road. You got time change. You got all this stress is outside of just the golf part. And then it's like, well, how about like six, eight weeks? So I could just like chill, like, like actually take two weeks and do nothing. So I can totally refuel. <laughs> And then maybe get into have a good month of training and prep or six weeks of training and prep before I have to go back out. I mean, it was great when we had those 10, 12 weeks. Today's tour is a little bit of a problem, to be honest, I think, for a lot of these guys. And I think it's also partly why we're seeing more injuries than before. Yeah. You know, we're not getting that true big block of time where you can literally put your clubs up on the shelf for a couple of weeks and be like, and I remember, you know, I was working with Luke Donald. I still work with Luke, but in like 2000. Between 2010 and 2011, I mean, we put the clubs away for a month in the offseason. Mm-hmm. We had 10 weeks off, and literally for four weeks, we were in the gym. We took like a week or two and did no work, did nothing. And then we started hitting the gym hard and doing all that stuff. But literally for a month, didn't pick up a golf club. Mm-hmm. There's no chance of doing that. And yeah, again, especially talk- if you're not a top player. Yeah, but the way the FedEx Cup works now and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know if you remember when they first started changing the season where, you know, the, these fall series events started counting. A lot of the guys who were like Luke and the top players in the world, they kind of just continued on the old path. Well, I'm just not going to play until January after tour champ. 
And then Jimmy Walker would go out and win two times in the fall. And the guy would be so far ahead in FedEx Cup points. It was uh, like you were done. You were out. Like there was no way for you to get back in. And now all of a sudden, all those guys feel like they at least have to get a couple of those in or literally the season can get away from right? Because if somebody goes and goes on a little tear, it's $15 million in that tour. In that in FedEx Cup. It's yeah, a lot of Del Rey me. Somebody at the end, right? So guys bail. like, oh. Like it's just really, really tricky to find ways to find those big, big blocks of time and do it. So now everybody's kind of on this, you know, if you get two weeks off, that's like a big break. Three is like, woo, I had three weeks off. You feel like, you know, you're killing it. So it's really, really a challenging thing to do. And the tour is just a different world than any other sport out there. And, you know, you got to manage. But at the same time, there's times like if the game is going to get further and faster, like we talked about hitting it farther, well, how are you going to do that? Like you're going to have to do it while this is going on. You're going to have to be willing at some point to say, you know what? I got to do a lot of speed work. I got to get stronger. I got to whatever it is that you need and make it a priority. And you can't get over caught up with how you're going to play that week. Because if the long-term goal is to be one of those top guys, you don't do those things. You're not getting there. I mean, it just, it's that simple. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, I, I don't think most people know that you play, you fly out Monday, then you play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you do this three, four weeks in a row. Oh, it's, and you're, you know, you're sleeping in strange beds with strange pillows and different stuff. And it's not like sleeping in your own bed every night. You get in a hotel and you're like, oh my God, that bat bed was so horrible. My neck is all jacked <laughs> up. So wake up. Right? Like this, yeah. you know, you guys travel a lot, or at least we're traveling a lot before yeah. this, doing a lot of conferences and stuff like that. You know, I mean, you get in a wonky situation, wake up the next day, you maybe like fall asleep for four hours on a plane in some weird position. And you like, you, you get up the next day and your shoulders all jacked up and but like you said, I mean, they're flying out on Monday, Tuesday. They might do, you know, a little bit of practice chipping. They won't have a hard practice when, you know, some guys will, if they didn't play well the week before they're practicing hard, right? Then you got Wednesday as a pro-am. So you're playing a full 18 holes, you know, which is usually an 8 million hour round because you're playing with some amateur who shoots 127, but he's got a lot of cash to pay for the pro-am or whatever. But, you know, those are five, six hour rounds with those guys, you know, and then you might be up, you know, people don't realize these guys are teeing it up at 7.30 in the morning yeah. if you have early tee times. I mean, guys, we're up and at the course doing warm-ups at 5 a.m. Like people don't realize, you know, the grind. And so if you have a late early tee time, so let's say you play late on Thursday and early on Friday, oh. you might not finish your round Thursday night until 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Then you're like, oh, I got to go home. I got to shower. I got to have dinner. I got to wind down. I got to get to bed. And I got a 4.30 wake-up call. And I got to go out and perform at a world-class level. Mm-hmm. These are, it's a lot harder than people give it credit for. And that's why having your body functioning at a high level, having all of this stuff, your body moving well, because you're probably only certain days of the year, you probably really at your best. A lot of those days, like you need to be so good that 80, 90% on that morning that you just got up at 4.30 after four or five hours of sleep, that that's still good enough to be world-class. Mm-hmm. That's the hard part. When, you know, I get calls from people, oh, I want to make the tour. I'm a good golfer. It's like, oh God. Really? <laughs> you should know already. <laughs> right? You're like, you're like, look, yeah, it's like, you know, like I won my club championship seven times. It's like, yeah, you've also played that same course four hundred thousand times. You know every putt. You know where to leave every ball. You know where to do everything. You're not mm-hmm. getting up at four in the morning. There's nobody watching you. You're not playing from the tips. Like, like the course isn't running at a thirteen on the stip meter. Like, let's go down the checklist of things. You know, so here in where I live in New Jersey. We have like a, it's called the Met Open. It's like the whole tri-state area. It's like an open gym. I tell people, I'm like, go win the Met Open and then call me. And, you know, it's like saying I'm going to win the the, camp, the California Open or whatever, amateur. 
Yeah, that's that's a big that's a big deal. You got to be unbelievable. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that I tell people who come down. Go, you're from California. Go in the California AM. Then maybe we'll have a conversation. And by the way, that doesn't even mean you're that good. Can you get into the mid AM? Can you get into the US AM? Right. We'd go. But at a minimum, win something like that. That means you have like you beat a lot of legitimate golfers, legitimate amateur golfers. <laughs> like people don't appreciate how awesome these guys are. They're just awesome. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous, man. They're. <laughs> I, I practiced with um, Mark Hensby one time, and this is in Arizona when I was playing college. And he told me that the most underrated player on tour was Tiger Woods because people did not realize how good he was when he was at his peak. Oh, when he was at his I mean, but that's why he also, you know, would show up with his C game and win. Yeah. I mean, he would, you, be the, he would hit it into the woods. He would hit it sideways. And you look up and you'd make birdie on that hole. You're like, what? <laughs> how do you hit it there and make birdie? Or like, you know, or it's behind a tree and you're like, okay, here comes double bogey. And he would make par. Mm-hmm. His ability to scramble and save and, I remember I was working with Robert Carlson. I remember, I forget what year it was, maybe 2002 when the U.S. Open was at uh, Bethpage Black. And he was paired up with Tiger. And Robert came off the course and I was, I was there with him. I was like, man, how was it out there today? He's like, oh my God. He goes, I thought I played so great. He goes, and I shot par. He goes, and Tiger hit it all over the planet. And he goes, and he shot 68. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, what makes him so great? He said, you know what makes him so great? He just knows how to put the ball in the hole better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the bottom really, line. He knows yeah. how to put the ball in the hole better than everybody else. Yeah. Right. And he's very, like, he doesn't have true. to hit it good, great. He's like, he just finds a way to put the ball in the hole. He's yeah. like, he goes, he goes, if you, someone didn't tell me we were keeping score, he goes, I would have thought I beat him by six shots. That's how much mm. better I played than, but he's mm. four shots ahead of me. That's crazy. That's how good Tiger was. When someone sees you using the stick and, and kind of wonders what you're using the stick for when you're doing golf drills or golf warmups, what would your, like, if I'm the ca- a casual golfer, I show up at a golf course, I see you warming up with the sticks or whatever, and I say, what the hell are you using those things for? Like, what would your, what would your way of telling me what the advantage of using them would be? Yeah, I'd say, look, there's some of the stuff that you can do here with a golf club or whatever, any other piece of equipment that you want. Look, and, you know, and 100% honestly, I mean, why I reached out to you guys myself in the first place, and it wasn't like you, we all had an idea to start a business together and do a golf program. I was like, hey, man, look, I honestly love these things. These are awesome for golfers, and I think there's a market for this, and I think this could really help golfers. And that's really, you know, truthfully how the whole thing came about, right? Mm-hmm. Because the idea that, you know, I, I was always a stability guy. Meaning, like, so Bryson trains with a guy named Greg Roscoff. It's a thing called MAT, muscle activation. I'm an MAT guy. I did Greg Roscoff's internship. I went through the whole year-long program. I've done all that stuff with him. Also. So I'm a big stability guy. I like red cord and activating muscles to increase mobility. I was never, I was always a guy that got sh- frustrated when I would stretch people. And, you know, they got nice and flexible that moment. And then the next day they would come back flexibility would be gone and just doing that over and over and over again. I, I got to a point at one point in my career where I just stopped stretching people and I didn't have another option, but I just knew that I was wasting 10 minutes of everybody's session or something that wasn't working mm-hmm. or sticking, should I say, lasting. Mm-hmm. Then I got involved with MAT and Red Cord and started having some stability-driven models where when we got activation and stability for certain people, for certain things, wow, that made a massive change. All of a sudden, their range of motion did dramatically improve because their problem wasn't truly a mobility problem. It was a stability problem. And when the body sensed that it had control over those emotions, it allowed them to move through those planes. But then when I saw what you guys were doing with the sticks, I was like, now that's 
taking the whole idea to the next level, right? So when you think about stability, it's having strength or stability in those positions, right? So this was like, oh, I can actually lengthen the muscle, get it in a long position, which is quote unquote, stretching the muscle. Mm -hmm. But because of the reflexive properties of the stick, my muscular system and my neural system had to switch on and create an activation of the muscles to actually hold me in that position. So now I was getting strong in the long position. And that's really why people get such great results from the stick is because for your body to allow you to maintain this flexibility gain, you need to be strong there. Because for a lot of people, when they're unstable, when the muscle gets long, that's the weakest position of the muscle. Mm -hmm. And when the body senses instability, it wants to shorten back up to protect you because you're weak and unstable. Mm -hmm. What the stick does is put you in that long position and actually forces you to get strong and stable in that position. And then once the brain goes, oh, I'm actually safe here. It's okay. I'm not going to hurt myself. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. It lets you own that range of motion that you just gained. And that for me was the driver. And that's what I tell everybody. I'm like, you need to be strong when you're long. And when you're long is actually when you're the weakest mm -hmm. by nature from a cross muscular cross bridging perspective. Mm -hmm. I think great. that's, yeah. you know, I think that's what people don't really understand about what the big benefit is. Yeah. I think there's a misconception that mobility training isn't strength training. Right. Yeah, it's getting that's strong in the long position is what lets you hold it. Cause again, like I said, I, it's not like I didn't get results from stretching people. They got mm -hmm. super flexible for the, the 10 minutes I stretched them and maybe for 10 minutes after, but it didn't last because yeah. they were unstable in the positions I put them into. Mm -hmm. And then the body was just like, well, why would I let you go there? You're going to hurt yourself. So it just keeps taking it away. And we were just in this constant game of tug of war. I would get some, they would take some. I would get some, they would take some. <laughs> That's what who, and I, like I said, I had no solution to being, I just knew it wasn't working. So I just had said, you know what? I might as well just keep working out for 10 more minutes. I'm wasting, I'm taking these people's money for 10 minutes of work that has no value. Yeah. I, I get more value out of just staying in the gym and doing our strength work for 10 more minutes. And then like, as I started learning about activations and all that stuff, I started adding some more of that type of work in there with my MAT work. I started using red card that work. And then when I saw you guys, I'm like, oh, that's like the perfect tie it all together because it's not just one or just the other, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stability stuff we were doing was not being done in the lengthening position. It was stability and still getting joint control or, you know, neuromuscular controls still did help me increase my range, but I wasn't actually doing it in the long position. The sticks let me put, get those muscles in the long position and get strong. And that's when like, I was like, oh yeah, this is something I got to get involved with because this is magic for golfers. This is what golfers are looking for. Right. It really, it really is. And again, I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, people can think, oh, he's just trying to sell it or whatever. I mean, that's fine. People can think what they want, but you know, like I said, the truth is I approached you guys saying, Hey, look, this stuff is the real deal. I'm using, I, you know, I, I want to, I'm doing it with my golfers. I love this stuff. The golfing world needs to know about. That. Yeah, I mean, I think we've heard from a lot of people that just go through just a couple of weeks of our fundamentals program that are, that, pick up distance just be, like you said right we're giving him more time to create speed and you know and we're taking them through all these different planes of motion and getting their spine to actually bend in different positions and all of a sudden they're like oh two weeks you know i didn't lift any weights and i picked up you know 10 yards no doubt i mean there's no doubt it's a really cool tool i mean you know a lot, a lot of times the best ideas are simple ones and this is a simple idea but Super, super smart. And I don't know which one of you guys came up with it, but <laughs> good, good for you guys. Uh, you know, I'm happy to be a part of this in a small way, a part of the team. And, you know, I, I'm a huge, huge believer in the sticks and what they're doing. And it's amazing to see 
people in all sports, you know, taking to it with such a passion and, you know, seeing it on the floor of NBA games and on sidelines of baseball games and, you know, all over the, all over the whole entire sports continuum. But, you know, what's unique about golf is no other sport demands such extreme range of motion in so many joints as golf. So golfers need it the most just because of the requirement of the sport, right? I mean, maybe a baseball pitcher has a lot mm -hmm. of, but beyond them, I don't think I can think of any other athlete that demands so much range of motion in so many joints as a goal. Yeah, very true. So going back to, you know, the, these tour guys chasing speed now, do you think that we're going to see shorter careers on tour because they're trying to get the most out of their body? And be as powerful as they can. Yeah, I mean, I think that we may see that initially. I, I you know, I, I think if you look at speed and power, like from our strength and conditioning world, I think what we're going to have to learn to do is control volume, right? So maybe guys, if you want to be that guy, maybe the amount of hours you practice is going to have to come down a bit. Or the amount of reps you're doing is going to have to come down a bit. I think that's the way you can combat the higher intensity, right? Like if we look in our world, you got like, you know, volume, frequency, intensity, like all of those variables that we look at when looking at a program. So we know that we're bringing intensity up through the roof. So something else to get, you know, somewhere else, the volume, the frequency, whatever has to come down for us to be able to create an equilibrium that doesn't push us over the edge. There are probably some guys who probably have room to do more of both. Like they're not, they haven't pushed themselves hard enough and probably have a room to just add some speed work and probably would be okay. And there's other guys probably who you're going to say, Hey, look, let's add this, but let's ramp down, you know, the amount of balls we're hitting per week. And so instead of doing three hours per day on the range, we're going to do two hours on the range or whatever we're going to do to reduce loads somewhere else. I think that's really going to be the key. I don't know how many people are doing that right now. I know I'm talking about that with my guys. Uh, how do we offset the intensity increase? But I feel like, you know, there's a lot of smart guys in our world out there that will figure that part out. So you might see a couple of guys fall victim to that early because I will let's call this the, the beginning of this changing of the game. We're in that early stages of this, you know, just need for speed. So could there be a couple of people who fall victim to it? Sure, there could be. But like anything, there's a lot of smart people in the game of golf, a lot of smart trainers and therapists and coaches and people involved in the world. Uh, what we're going to, we will figure out the right thing. And like, it's not a simple thing. The formula yeah. for each person yeah. and what their tolerances are is going to be different. But, you know, we, it, I don't need to be genius to say, if I'm going to bring this up, I need to bring something down. Right. So hopefully that's at least the first step in the right direction. And then finding that sweet spot will be the battle for all of us. That Goldilocks complex. We're always <laughs> trying to find that perfect blend of everything, right? Yep. Yeah. That, that, well, it's, it's, We've talked numerous times. Dosage. What's the prescription? Right? What's the prescription? What's the dosage? Because one one dosage for one person cannot be the same for the other. Yeah. Look, everybody and I, we have this big talk of minimal effective dose. Mm -hmm. Like, man, that's a pretty tough concept. And like, how do you how do you measure that? What does that mean? That's my right. question. Like, what does that mean? And what does effective mean? Right. Because right. that's all, my question. Everybody. <laughs> right? Because it's all relative. Is it effective or is, yeah. it, op is it optimal More. or is it effective? Like, did it help? Okay. But would something else help more? More. Yeah. Then does that mean was that was minimally effective or that was I was that so or, 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 to... or is that quote minimally effective? Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not minimal effective dose. It's minimally <laughs> effective, effective dose. dose. Yes. Right. So, and I'm not saying that there isn't maybe something out there that exists like that. I'm just saying, wow, man, that's like the holy grail. And, you know, 
that's pearl diving. And if you, if you think you're going to come up with a pearl, good for you. But I mean, I, I think that's a really, really hard concept to dial in and feel like X marks the spot. I can hit that on the nose and I know the answer because it's too many I, variables. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good at what I do. I don't believe for one second I, I can do that. I mean, I'd like to think I could, but I can't. Very true. Too, too tough. I mean, too tough, right? And so again, and in the world of professional sports, it is about optimizing. It's not mm -hmm. about a minimal effective dose. Mm -hmm. It's about minimal optimal dose. Yep. That's right. a different thing. That's a vastly different because, thing. Because in pro sports, everything we're doing is thin slicing. It's about marginal gains. Anywhere you can steal a marginal gain. Mm -hmm. I eat a little bit better. I sleep a little bit better. I'm a little better meditator. Wedges, irons, this stronger, faster, more flexible, mentally tougher, whatever the, the element is that you're going after. And the minute you start thinking, I'm going to get a minimal effective dose, and you think that's going to give you also the marginal gains you need, oof, that's a tricky, tricky, tricky place to be. <laughs> I mean, look, if you're the best guy in the world and it's working for you, then just stay the same. Yeah. Don't do minimal, less or more. It works. Maybe you don't have to change for, chase for marginal gains. Because you're the best. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you should also now minimize down off of what you've done and say, can I do less to be that good? I say, if it's not not broken, don't fix don't it. Don't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I mean, all, all of this stuff is what's really cool about our industry. And we get to debate and talk about and throw ideas around. And they're all sound really cool <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> but the execution of them with precision is a totally different thing. That is true. Well, Ben, thank you very much for coming on, brother. That was a oh. fantastic show. Uh, tons of great information. So we definitely appreciate you coming on, man. Oh, thank my you pleasure as always. And uh, we'll have you on again. And uh, next time we have you on, we'll get a little more into the ice form. Ice of it too. Let's get into that ice hockey. We got to <laughs> yeah, get I'm back a, into that a little bit more. I'm, I'm all about it. We need to create so, a little ice hockey stick mobility program. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, think Dude, I do it with uh, my hockey guys because their hits are obviously are so bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. They that's the, I, they don't complain about anything. Like, you know, hockey guys have a total different mindset, right? They're just animals. They'll do anything. I get them into some st hip stuff with the sticks. And they're just like, oh! <laughs> like, like the, the, the minute I'm like, oh, go grab your sticks. They're just like, oh, not the sticks, man. <laughs> but like, you could tell them to go run through a brick wall, but they're leading with their head with no helmet. They're like, yeah, let's go. You're like, ah. let's stretch. They're like, oh, <laughs> that is so awesome. So who's the master, your master's pick here? Uh, who's my master's pick? I'm going to say DJ. I'm going to say DJ. Well. You know, look, I think people forget how great he was playing going into the U.S. Open. The guy had won basically everything that he, you know, or second every week, pretty much. Uh, he didn't have his best week there. I mean, obviously, it's been a while. I don't know, man. Like, I feel like he's got so many tools, so many tools. But who do you got? I mean, I want, I want to see Tiger win. Yeah. But I, yeah, I just don't, I don't see it happening right now. I mean, he came in 75th out of 77 guys or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't week. seem like, I don't know if he's, you know, healthy enough or he's not playing much or. Seems like he's lost a lot of speed. Um, Father time. Like he's, he's Tiger Woods. You can never count him out, dude. Yeah. People have counted him out before and the guy shows up somehow and gets the job done. I mean, right. like, like Robert Carlson said, he knows how to get the hole, the ball in the hole better than anybody else. There you go. So, uh, did you want to share any of your social media handles or how people can? Yeah, sure. You can find me kind of in a bunch of places. <laughs> uh, I have a Bench Your Golf 
social media handle. And then I also have just Ben.Sheer myself. Um, some of the content's the same. Some is different. My Ben.Sheer one, I tend to mix and match. I show golf stuff and hockey stuff. Um, and my Ben.Sheer golf one, obviously, is all golf stuff. So it's a little bit of that. Uh, our website, BenSheerGolf.com, uh, I have as well. And I have my own, my facility is called Athletic Edge. So AthleticEdge.net. I'm on Twitter, Facebook. You kind of find me wherever. Um, I do less on Twitter, to be honest. But uh, I do still have one, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I occasionally hop on there and do, and throw some stuff up there, or whatever. But nice. Instagram and Facebook probably the best place to find me. Fantastic. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, until next episode, be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs>